Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Pyle Salzberg, and today I'm here with my co-presenter, Scott McConkie. Scott is a commercial and employment litigator. Um, he has practiced both in state and federal court. Um, also, he's been a member of the BBO hearings uh, panels, and so he's had experience both with big firms, mid-sized firms, and small firms representing um, not only individuals, but also companies. So he's got a good uh, uh, you know, experience with taking depositions of not only, um, you know, in a big firm setting, as well as in a small firm setting and a mid-sized firm setting. I'm Pyle Salzberg. My practice is focused on white collar criminal defense and commercial litigation. Like Scott, I practice, I practice both in state and federal courts, and I'm also a hearing officer for the BBO, and I've been in both big firms and small firms. As Doug said earlier, um, feel free to use the question and answers um, uh, feature of Zoom to ask questions as uh, they come up. Uh, we'd rather answer them for you when they come up during the presentation uh, than saving them for the end. Um, this is a Depositions 101 course. It's, it's going to be pretty basic. Uh, if you guys have, if any of you have taken depositions in the past, um, some of it may be repetitive, uh, but it's mostly geared towards learning the very basics of how to take your first deposition or to defend your first deposition. Um, with that, I'm going to share my screen to um, uh, use the PowerPoint for today's presentation. Scott, take it away. Okay, thanks, Pyle. Um, so actually, before we even get into the advantages of depositions, I want to just take a step back and talk about what's the purpose of a deposition. Um, you know, first it's it's for gathering facts and you want to um, you know, confirm what you think you know. Um, you want to try to uh, find out what you don't know, try to find out the possibly opposing party story or find out details that they have um, that you aren't privy to. Um, you're also gonna be testing factual theories or legal theories and you know, finally, you're going to be preparing for trial. Uh, deposition testimony um, can be used at trial for impeachment purposes, but also for witnesses who aren't going to be available for trial. You're going to be using um, deposition transcripts in place of their live test, in place of their live testimony. Uh, another purpose of depositions is to facilitate settlement. Um, a lot of times, you don't have um, that much face-to-face -face interaction with opposing counsel or the opposing party um, in the course of a case, and depositions are a, a way of, you know, facilitating um, communication, opening lines of communication, and sometimes um, it can facilitate settlement, especially when parties are going to see, um, you know, strengths and strengths and weaknesses of your case or their case. Um, and, and also, frankly, you know, seeing what a burden um, the, the litigation process is. Oftentimes, depositions help um, push people or nudge people towards settlement. Okay, so advantages of depositions compared to um, other discovery devices. Um, the biggest advantage in my book is that um, you're hearing directly from a witness um, or a party as opposed to um, their lawyer uh, interrogatories. I know a lot of lawyers who, who think interrogatories are just worthless because it's, it's just the attorney talking um, and they only use interrogatories to you know, find out people who have um, information in, in basic facts. So um, you know, getting a, a, a witness or a party um, across the table from you and answering questions in their own words is, is very helpful. Um, you know, the other thing, unlike a, an interrogatory that might raise a bunch of questions um, in a deposition, you can follow up immediately um, and, and try to get more information um, than you would otherwise uh, get in an interrogatory answer. Um, you're also assessing people's credibility. You know, what kind of witness is this person going to be at trial? Um, and you're going to hopefully create a record uh, that you can use to impeach that witness at trial. And, and finally, advantage of a witness is you're trying to find it, not only are you trying to find out what you do know, you're going to try to find out what you don't know 
or what the witness does and doesn't know. And so when you go to trial, there's going to be no surprises um, from that witness. And, and we'll kind of go through that a little bit later when we talk about forms of questioning. Um, now, we talked about advantages of depositions. Um, you know, there are disadvantages of depositions too. One of the biggest disadvantages is uh, they're, they're costly. Um, it takes a lot of time to, to prepare for a deposition in a business case. Um, usually you have to, you know, review all the pleadings, you're reviewing a lot of documents and putting together an out outline. So to, to prepare for a deposition well, it takes a lot of time and costs a lot of money. Uh, it's also going to um, take up a lot of time of, you know, a witness too. Um, so if you're defending a deposition, you're going to have to spend a lot of time um, preparing that witness for a deposition. So um, there's that expense. Um, yeah, another potential disadvantage of a deposition is that you're in effect giving a witness a dry run through test through the kinds of testimony that he or she might have to provide at trial. Um, that's, you know, to a certain extent unavoidable because I think depositions are more valuable than not, but that is a potential um, disadvantage. So when it comes to deciding who to depose and when, a lot of the factors that Scott just talked about are come into play, right? So it depends on how much time you have. Uh, typically in a commercial litigation case, you you know, the, the tracking order deadline will give you about, you know, uh, maybe six months to a year to get your discovery done. Uh, but it may be that you've come into the case um, after another attorney has been on the case. And so you maybe only have a, a month or two months left. Um, and maybe the judge is not willing to extend the tracking order deadline to extend discovery. So a lot of it depends on how much time you have um, to take these depositions, your client's goals, I mean, and also your client's budget. Like Scott said, it can be expensive. So maybe the client only has enough, um, you know, resources to take a deposition of the two or three most important people. So you as the attorney knowing the facts will have to really sit down with your client and figure out who are the most two or th important two or three deposition witnesses that you would want to have at trial and then, um, you know, depose those witnesses. In terms of when, it makes most sense to wait until after paper discovery interrogatories and document productions are done so that you can a, know who are the people that are the most important that have the information that is pertinent to your case or your defense, and also uh, to use those documents during the deposition. So you can question the witness about the documents, for example, if it's an email they wrote, or if it's a letter that was sent out on behalf of the company, um, it's just best to have everything with you before you take a deposition of the witness. And as Scott said, sometimes depositions taking them early on can really tell the other side that their case is maybe not as strong as they think it is, or maybe their witnesses are not as strong as they think that they might have uh, been in the, uh, you know, when they initially did their investigation. So it could facilitate or prompt settlement negotiations. Um, and again, the last thing, this doesn't happen very often, but maybe in MedMal cases, um, if there's a danger of uh, the witness being unavailable for trial. So let's say you've got somebody, you know, who's got a terminal disease, um, you want to take their deposition ahead of time, maybe do a video deposition. Um, and that way you preserve their testimony for trial in case, you know, um, they won't be available at the trial. Okay, these are the rules that uh, govern depositions. Uh, rule 26 obviously governs uh, discovery in general. And uh, Rule 26 allows for broad discovery. So at a deposition, you really shouldn't be getting objections. I mean, you will because uh, attorneys like to object, but um, you shouldn't be getting a lot of objections about relevance. Um, you know, especially you shouldn't be getting instructions not to answer based on relevance. I mean, that only really happens if um, an attorney is um, probing about you know things that are you know private. Um, that really have no relation to um, the, the litigation. So for the most part, you can get very broad discovery in, um, in depositions. Um, rule 30 kind of governs the mechanics. Um, you've got to give at least seven days notice. I mean, in terms of scheduling, um, what I typically do is even before I send out deposition notices, I talk to the other side about scheduling. Um, some people just fire off um, 
deposition notices and then you know you negotiate um, when they are uh, you know people can do different things but I find it easier just to to be upfront with opposing counsel you know these are the witnesses who I want you know who are you going to want you know why don't we work together to um, um, come up with a schedule that works for everybody um, rule 30b6 um, is a very powerful tool in business litigation um, and, and what it allows you to do is um, rather than figuring out, you know, who from an organization you might need to um, depose, you um, issue a notice to the corporate entity um, or partnership or government agency. And in the deposition notice, you're going to provide a list of um, subject areas that you're going to inquire about. And then the um, corporate entity or the organization has an affirmative obligation to educate a witness or witnesses, um, they'll be the, the designee on the different topics. And so um, it, it's a much more efficient way to get discovery from an organization. And I really can't think of a, a business case where I haven't um, taken a, a 30B6 deposition. Um, and then finally, I'll just touch on uh, rule 45 that governs um, Sub, um, subpoenas. So uh, the great things about depositions are you can take them of parties, but you can also take them of non-parties. And um, you can also get documents from non-parties through a subpoena to Sistecum. So um, you can notice up a deposition, have that person um, bring documents with them. Um, so it's, it's a very effective discovery tool. And just uh, one point on the Rule 30b-6 um, corporate designee depositions, um, you can have, for example, if it's a, you know, a, a closely held corporation and you want to depose, um, for example, one of the owners, the majority owner, um, in his or her capacity as the owner, and then you also want to depose the corporate entity through a 30b-6, it can be that that same person is not only an individual who's being deposed in his or her individual capacity, but also a deposition as um, a corporate designee. So you could have potentially the same person being deposed on behalf of the corporation, where they, whatever they say binds a corporation, and also um, a second deposition with the same person in their individual capacity, where they're not speaking for the corporation, but themselves individually as the owner of the company. So that is a possibility that may happen. Now there's, you know, um, there's of course nowadays, given uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of the depositions are being done in fact by Zoom, uh, by video, uh, by Zoom or by some other form of um, taking a video deposition. Now, when I say video deposition versus Zoom deposition, under the rules, the video deposition is a whole different beast. Um, and that's where you actually have a videographer recording it um, as the deposition is going forward. Hitting Zoom recording is not the same thing. In fact, um, given Massachusetts being a uh, two-party consent state, I would highly recommend you do not record a, a deposition on your own using the Zoom or Microsoft Teams or some other uh, software that you're using to do the actual deposition. If you do want to uh, notice it as a video deposition, uh, it notice it under Rule 30A make sure you coordinate with the court reporter um, that they have, a, you know, they have their own way of setting up the video deposition, have them record and have them do everything that is in compliance with Rule 30A. Again, you want to weigh the pros and cons. I mean, not every deposition is something that you would want to do on video. Not only is it expensive, but, you know, the other side may not um, be that keen on having a video deposition. So let's, you know, always talk to the other side if there is some particular reason to have the video, uh, the deposition videotaped, for example, if you've got a particularly sympathetic or unsympathetic witness, uh, if you've got a, maybe a difficult witness that you've, um, you know, call back, maybe the first time around didn't go so well because they were a difficult witness, maybe you want them to um, have a, you know, the continued depot be on video so that the judge can really see this difficult, uh, the witness is really difficult. Um, again, like I said earlier, if you're representing a a dying plaintiff whose deposition was not um, noticed for video recording, make sure you yourself cross notice it as a videotape deposition in case the party who is noticed, who noticed the deposition did not notice it. Um, again, again, rule 30 AM, make sure to the extent that you've got a, a video deposition scheduled for expert witnesses, uh, just make sure you're complying with rule 30 A. 
Now, um, I just want to quickly show you a clip why sometimes a video deposition can be very helpful, um, not just to show the judge, but also for to if you're showing uh, the jury some portion of the video deposition, maybe to impeach or maybe um, for some other purpose, it can be very helpful for the jury to see the demeanor of um, the witness who's testifying because a court reporter can take all the words down but cannot show the jury what the demeanor of the testifying witness was. So I will stop sharing here and then share with you um, the video. What did Jerry Lane teach you to do concerning this recall of Chevrolet Cobalts in 2010? They didn't teach me nothing. Did you reach or satisfy the GM specs? You test drive the car, the power steering system works. It That's works. what a GM spec is? It works or it doesn't work. That's what the GM specs say? Dude, I don't know what the GM specs say, okay? All right, so do you know what torque standard you had to meet in order for these bolts to be tightened evenly for the 2007 Chevy Cobalt for Miss Fan's car? I don't remember what the torque is. I would have referred to the document that would have told me. Is it in Exhibit 4 anywhere? N not by this writing. All right, and do you remember today the specific number as you sit here today? I don't remember a specific number. Thank you, sir. It is important though, isn't it? Because it can affect the function of the actual motor, the actual power steering campaign. Proper torque is important for any item on a car. That's not what I asked you. What I asked you was in connection with the power steering campaign. Is the torquing of the bolt important for its function? Yes or no? That question goes beyond my skill level. Thank you. Was there a standard that you were meeting that was instituted by Jerry Lane Chevrolet, your employer at the time? Jerry Lane set no standards to meet it works or it don't work. Did Jerry Lane provide any information as a regarded workmanship and personal, um, or should I say professional standards or compliance that you had to meet uh, as an employee of Jerry Lane for installation of this recall product, sir? If they did, I don't know what it was. We do read that first sentence. Your GM dealer will replace electronic power steering motor. It didn't say General Motors, right? Right. It didn't say um, the customer at their own cost, right? Right. Who was the dealer in this case? Jerry Lane. And who did you work for at that time when Miss Spann's vehicle was repaired? Jerry Lane. I fucked up, okay? Okay, so just based on um, what you just saw a few for a couple of minutes, you can see that, you know, the witness seems really not connected. He doesn't care. It seems, um, you know, um, minus the curse word at the end. It seems like these kind of, um, the way he's testifying will really come across to the jury, especially if you are on the plaintiff side, if you are the person representing uh, the, uh, the woman that they were talking about, really comes across as uncaring, uh, really you know, didn't want to be there, was very lackadaisical. So th this can be very important for a jury to see if you're on the plaintiff side in this case, to see that you know, they didn't care. If, they didn't if he didn't care about the deposition, he probably didn't care about the car that the, your client brought in. And you know, I'm not sure what the background of the deposition was, but here, it can be very helpful to have a video deposition, so. I don't think that case went to trial based on that guy's last comment. <laughs> <laughs> I think it settled shortly afterward. <laughs> All right, so um, preparation is key. Um, it, it takes, you know, a fair amount of, of uh, work to 
to prepare for a deposition, um, you're going to want to start by um, reviewing, you know, all the elements of the claims um, and you know, all the elements of the defenses. Um, you're going to want to review um, all the pleadings. You're going to want to pull all of their written, all of the opposing uh, parties' written discovery responses. Um, you know, following up on things they said in interrogatories is often uh, fertile ground for deposition. Um, one thing a lot of uh, people do, and I'll do for certain depositions in their in their deposition outline, they'll actually at the very you know you'll have the name, and then you'll want to put the goals in the you know even before you start getting into your outline about you know like name, background, blah blah blah. Um, try to figure out you know why you're deposing this person, what you want to get out of this person, and having that on paper is going to help because through the course of the day or you know however long the deposition is you can see whether or not you're fulfilling your goals and it's a reminder um, to make sure that you you get out of a witness what you need um, you know one thing you can do is is investigate the deponent with uh, social media there's a lot of opportunities to do that um, linkedin um, facebook um, you know you can um, you can find out a lot about um, about people now. Um, you know the rules of professional conduct um, do not permit you to friend anybody um, on Facebook, so I would advise against that. But uh, you can find out a lot of things. A colleague in in um, my firm actually, um, I'm not on Facebook, so I'm probably not going to describe this correctly, but. Um, he had a, he was defending a harassment case and um, the plaintiff had, I guess, an open um, profile on Facebook. And it was amazing the things that um, he was able to obtain from this uh, plaintiff's Facebook posts. So, um, you know, definitely do your background in, in trying to find out as much as you can about the witness uh, before the deposition. Um, and if I may jump in, Scott, on that one, not just find out about uh, the witness that you're going to be deposing, but also your own client, you know, when you, and we should probably do this at the, you know, early on, even before the depositions, but make sure that you are doing these searches and online, their Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, whatever it is, and see what your client is saying out there, because if there's something out there that you can find that hurts your case, trust me, the other side will find it. So, um, for example, I'll just give you a quick example. We had a client come in, this was a while ago, where the client says, I don't know that person at all. Like, I've never even heard of that person. Well, apparently, I found a Facebook post that said they went to the same church and they were, um, you know, there, there was a newsletter in the church that showed them together. So, obviously, I, you know, I was able to go back to the client and say, Well, what happened here? I see you, you know, there's a post in your church's um, Facebook page that shows you together and was said, oh yeah, I did happen to meet that person. So just make sure you're really prepared not only to investigate the deponent that you are gonna be deposing, but also if your client is gonna get deposed, make sure you do a really good job of finding out what they're putting out there or maybe other things that are put out about them in social media. Um, prepare an outline. Um... You know, some people just kind of walk into a deposition with a stack of documents and um, just start asking questions. Um, you can do that, you know, in some cases, but I think, you know, forcing yourself to prepare an outline, you don't have to script out every question, but just preparing an outline makes you think about the case and how um, things work together, how, you know, this document might relate to this document or how, um, you know, how you should structure your questioning, whether you should start off um, asking them about interrogatory answers that, um, that, that they've served and then following it up with documents, but it's gonna help um, crystallize your thinking about the case and you're gonna figure out the best, um, you know, the, the best way to, to approach your questioning. You know, that said, the key at a deposition is the most important thing at a deposition as a um, questioning attorney is to listen. Um, you have to listen carefully, and, and that's that's more important than your outline, um, because you want to, you know. Sometimes you have a tendency, um, especially if things are scripted out, um, to kind of 
you know, ask a question and then look at your outline to try to figure out what you're gonna ask next. And that's a big mistake because um, you wanna listen to what the witness is saying and then you know, ask follow-up questions. And, and sometimes you might be going, you might just go completely off script and you're gonna um, you know, start asking follow-up questions and you might go down uh, a road that you hadn't anticipated. But if you have an outline there, then you know, when, you're, when you've exhausted that you know, potentially new area of inquiry, you can go back to your outline and you'll get back on track. Now, if you, um, in, you know, when you're taking your first deposition or defending your first deposition, if there's an experienced attorney on the other side, they probably, once a witness is sworn in, will say, counsel, usual steps, and I'll be the first one to admit it. The first time somebody said that to me, I didn't want to seem like I didn't know what I was talking about. And so I said, yeah, sure. Except I had no idea what usual steps meant. Um, easy, just look at rule 30C. So the typical usual steps um, outside of the Zoom, we'll talk about Zoom context uh, next, but the usual steps are that you are going to reserve all objections to the questions except to form and you'll reserve it for trial. So the only thing you will object to on the record will be objection to form. Um, the other stipulation is the deposition will be read and signed by the deponent and that you waive filing. Usually it's about 30 days after the official transcript is provided to you by the court reporter. And then the last one is the motions to strike testimony are reserved and can be raised at the time of trial. So these are the three usual steps that people are talking about when they say usual steps. Now, if you feel more comfortable, um, which I do, is to recite the stipulations on the record to remove any uncertainty that there might be because what usual steps mean to you may not be what usual steps mean to the other side. So I just prefer to say, here are the three steps, stipulations, and then you know put that on the record. Now, there's, now that we're doing Zoom depositions, um, there's one more stipulation that usually the court reporter will recite and which is that uh, all, the part, all the parties are agreeing that the witness will be, uh, 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 will take the oath remotely. Usually it's done in person where the witness shows the ID, raises the hand. Um, so there's a stipulation now that, that by doing that over Zoom where off camera before the deposition actually starts on the record, the witness will show his or her ID over the video to the court reporter, and that way the court reporter off uh, the record can make sure that it is a witness who is testifying is in fact the person who's been uh, noticed to depose, um, and then kind of move on from there. So these are the usual steps. So don't get intimidated when somebody says usual steps. I just want to follow up on something you said, uh, Pyle. When, when Pyle refers to objections as to form, I mean, what that means is that um, it's a something wrong with the question that be that can be cured at the deposition so uh, objections as to form are you know if the question is vague and ambiguous or if um, if it's compound or if it calls for a legal conclusion um, you know if it misstates prior testimony or is argumentative so those are the kinds of um, objections that must be made um, you know on the record um, because you know the, the thinking is that if you if you make a if you make an objection, the other side has an opportunity to cure it at the deposition, and and if they don't, um, then you know that testimony potentially might not be able to be used at trial. Uh, not really much to say about this. Um, this is you know how in a live deposition when everybody's um, you know, in the same place, this is how the seating normally works. For a videotaped um, deposition, it's going to be different. The the where the court reporter is in this diagram, the witness will be, and the videographer will be on the other side of the conference room table. Um, but you know, this is generally how um, the arrangement is in a live deposition. Yeah, and, and it's helpful to have, um, you know, the deponent have the counsel sitting next to you, especially if you're, uh, you know, defending the deposition so that if the deponent says something, you can like, kick them under the table um, and be like, you know, give them a little heads up that maybe if they're, you know, it usually happens in the afternoon, like if you've been going for hours and the deponent gets tired and, you, you know, client starts 
giving long drawn out explanations, you can kick them under the table and tell them that, uh, you know, give them a reminder. But in a Zoom deposition, it's hard to do that. Um, and there are, um, BBA has several uh, seminars and webinars about how to conduct a Zoom deposition. And I would recommend that you watch those um, and learn about how this changes and how do you interact with um, your client during a Zoom deposition. There, there are a lot of nuances. So um, I recommend you watch those. Okay, so Scott had talked about having a general deposition outline to make sure you know, you're know you proceeding in the deposition while you're listening and you may run off into uh, different areas that you hadn't anticipated, but you have a general outline as to what you want to achieve with this witness. And it's important, I mean, initially, you know, the first things you wanna do is to have the deponent, the witness give their name and address. Um, and then you introduce yourself to them, tell them what, what the process is. It may be that the witness is not there with a um, lawyer of his or her own. So, and they've never done a deposition before. So tell them who you are, who you represent, what the case is about, maybe just in a sentence or two and explain what the deposition process is. And also give them instructions of, you know, if you need to uh, take a break, maybe, you know, you can do that. Just let me know. Um, if, if I've asked you a question, I ask that you don't take a break between the question and the answer, finish the answer and go tell them to um, not talk over each other because it's very difficult for the court reporter to take, um, you know, to take the, to write down the testimony if people are talking over each other, and especially in a Zoom deposition setting where some, sometimes there's a lag between somebody speaking and somebody stopping. And so there can be a lot of um, talking over each other. So those kind of really basic instructions is a good way to get started with the, uh, with the deponent and also um, build the repo. When you ask, if you jump straight into um, the, the meat of the deposition, it, it might be a little jarring. Um, and unless you want to start off in a jarring way, that, that there's a strategy to that. But the, asking these background questions and talking to the witness without putting them, um, you know, right on under the, uh, the light about what the information they know can help build a rapport with the witness. So make sure you ask them about, you know, where they work and what kind of work they do, maybe their educational background and employment history. It helps really helps a lot for you to set that stage with them to see that, you know, and also start practicing, you know, if uh, they're talking over. Uh, when they're talking about the educational background, it's a lot easier to stop um, and tell them this is, you know, let, let's slow down a little bit. Let, let your attorney make an objection after I ask a question. So that's easy to practice. And then you go into the actual, you know, the crux of the deposition where you have a detailed examination of what the actually the witness knows. Some people will go chronologically, you know, from when they first joined the company and what happened and what their roles were and obligations were and responsibilities were. Some people will do it by topics where you, you wanna talk about a certain topic first and it may not be chronological, but you wanna hit topics as you go rather than um, chronologically. Again, like Scott said, don't script your questions because if you are too wedded to the order of the questions and the wording on the questions on your deposition um, outline, you will miss out on some key answers that are gems that you didn't know about that the witness is telling you with the answer, you might be so engrossed in your outline that you'll miss those. So again, you know, you can script out the topics, you can script out lines of questioning, but don't script out question, answer, question, answer, um, verbatim. And then you've got, uh, you know, the portion where you will be using exhibits. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but you want to also make sure that your exhibits are organized as part of your deposition outline. So if you're going chronologically, make sure your exhibits are organized chronologically. If you're doing by topic, make sure your exhibits are organized by topic. Um, if it is in a Zoom deposition, make sure that you, uh, uh, you know, decide whether you are going to use uh, a screen share like I'm doing right now through Zoom, or you're gonna use a third party software that manages the documents for you. And typically you go through the court reporter for that. Of course, it costs more money than just using the screen share functions, but um, there can be advantages to using a separate uh, software too, depending on which one you, you use. And also pre-marking exhibits. Pre-marking means um, if you've never done a deposition before, is if I show you a, a, an exhibit, uh, 
Um, usually the court reporter on the top right or the bottom right of the exhibit will put a little yellow or green sticky that says exhibit number and it's one, two, three, it goes sequentially. Um, I do not like to pre-mark my exhibits. I mean, I'll number them in tabs in my binder, but I don't like to put them in my outline as exhibit one, exhibit two, exhibit three, because if I jump around or if the witness answers something that um, you know gives me an answer that reminds me of an exhibit that might be relevant to that answer, um, I want to be able to pull that exhibit out of my uh, binder and use that right now. But if I have already marked it as exhibit one, two, three, now my exhibit numbers um, are going to get all messed up. So uh, have the exhibits in a binder separately um, and you know have a tab number or something, but don't actually mark them until you actually need to use them during the deposition. And I just wanted to touch on something um, that you, you just spoke about, Pyle, on um, at the beginning, kind of introducing yourself, building the rapport and talking about the process. Um, you know, part of doing that is, is you want to be a decent person and, and tell the person, you know, you can take a break if, if you need to take a break or use the restroom or whatever. But part of it too is to um, create a record so they later, you know, at trial, try to say, oh, I, I couldn't remember because, you know, um, you know, I, I hadn't, you know, had an opportunity to, to eat or whatever. And you can go back and say, well, you know, didn't I, you know, say you could take a break at any time? And, and you could kind of go through the, the steps that you took to show that, um, you know, you were being reasonable and that, you know, an excuse that somebody might come up with at trial um, really doesn't hold much water. Another thing people often um, do in, in that sort of beginning phase of explaining the process is ask if a person is, um, you know, taking any medication or, um, have they, you know, have they, you know, had alcohol within the last eight hours? Um, you know, is there, people often ask, you know, is there any reason why you can't give, you know, your full and truthful testimony here today to try to just rule out um, anything that somebody could say later to say, oh, you know, I couldn't remember that because, you know, X, Y, or Z. So there's, you know, besides being, you know, nice and decent and building rapport, there is, um, you know, a, a, a substantive reason why we kind of go through that um, introdu introductory um, back and forth. All right, so, um, I mean, we've touched on this um, already, but um, you know, you you, you want to have things planned out, but you want to be able to um, pivot when new subject areas uh, come up. And a, a lot of times, you know, a, a an instance where this might happen, you might um, be asking somebody about you know a certain subject area, and then they might talk about a conversation that they had with somebody else that you weren't aware of. And then you're going to go into, um, you know, all the, the when, where, why, how, you know, who said, um, you know, did what type questions. And so you, um, and then you'll ask all of those and you'll ask follow-up questions. And then once you've exhausted that, you can go back to your, um, your outline. And then in terms of questioning styles, I've seen a variety, right? Um, there can be deadpan where you just look at your um, outline and ask questions back and forth. You don't, you fit, you know, have a poker face and um, do not disclose to the other side as to what do you, you know, what topics you think are more important or something that the witnesses said that's completely surprising. And then there's, you know, my style is friendly where I try to just, you know, let the witness feel comfortable and look, I'm not here to attack you. You know, I'm just here to find out what information you know. You're not on the spot. Speak freely. Um, that's my style. Um, I also do a lot of pausing where um, if the witness has not, you know, been uh, uh, not been prepared well, uh, I do a lot of pause and I look at them. And if the witness feels awkward and, you know, there's a silence, they'll start talking and giving me more information just so that they can um, cover up the silence. So that's also very helpful. Um, I've seen attorneys be very aggressive in their style of questioning. It's um, hard to do unless you're a very experienced attorney, because if you become overly aggressive, I mean, you can, you can be aggressive with a few questions here and there, especially when the witness is cagey and dodgy. 
Um, but uh, consistent aggressiveness can kind of come across as obnoxious and the witness might, you know, uh, start becoming more difficult with you. So I would advise not to be too aggressive all the time. But if there's some, you know, line of questioning or there's a reason for you to have rapid fire questions, go ahead and do it. It, would, it could be helpful to you. Yeah, I mean, generally, uh, I, I, like Pyle, I'm more of a, a friendly conversationalist in depositions. And, and I think to a large extent, you've got to just, you know, you've got to be you and um, you can't try to be a different personality. I think ultimately you're going to be most successful just um, being, you know, true to yourself. Okay, so again, we've kind of gone over this a little bit, but what um, what you're trying to do um, in a deposition is, you know, to um, get a lot of information from the witness. And sometimes you, you might just have them, you know, tell me what you know about X, and then they'll tell you a story, and you might be making notes as they're telling the story, and then you're going to ask, you know, the you know the the follow-up questions: what, where, when, why, and then you're going to, you know, follow up on, um, on gaps or inconsistencies. Um, so you're going to theory test, and then you're going to, um, you're going to try to lock in admissions at the very end. And, um, and also at the very end, you're trying to close the witness off, um, just to establish that they, um, that they've told you everything that they know, and they don't know anything more. Um, one thing you can do to Kind of in that closing off process is say you know what else you know what else do you know about this if you're trying to elicit more um, information but if 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 the information you've gotten is good and you may not want you know them to talk anymore about that but you still want to close them off you might say you know is that it which kind of um is they're they're going to be more inclined um to to limit the recall in that type of question and so um, in terms of locking in, you know, at the very beginning, I talked about one of the purposes of depositions is, you know, you, you may be using a transcript or a video snippet at trial, um, you know, substituting for live testimony. So when you're um, locking a person in, sometimes you're going to um, reframe um, questions and answers that, you know, might have come before, but it wasn't as clean as you'd like it. So a lot of times you might have gotten a bunch of information, but it's it's kind of scattered through a couple pages of the transcript. So you might want to think about um, trying to clean it all up so you've got a short snippet um, that is uh, better used at trial. And so just a quick example of, uh, you know, how do you ask broad questions and then uh, narrow it down and then lock in? So for example, let's say you are um, taking a witness uh, deposition of a witness who saw an accident. So first broad question would be, what happened on the day of the accident? So they tell you this long answer. And then you narrow it down to what exactly in the, where exactly in the intersection were you when you saw the traffic light turn yellow? Okay, so that's a narrower question. And now the answer is getting a little, uh, you know, a little bit more directed. And then you ask them more questions about, you know, what they saw in the interaction, intersection, left, right, what, you know, who else was there. And then once you've exhausted that line of pointed questions, you lock it in by saying, all right, here's the, you know, here's the picture of the map uh, of the intersection. Um, or that, uh, let's say you had given uh, an interview to a cop at the time, and exhibit three is that. And so it says, is it still your testimony that you were more than halfway through the intersection when the light turned yellow? So now you've kind of challenged um, and tried to lock it in as to whether are you really saying now that you were, you know, you were halfway through the intersection or what you told the cop on the scene, was that the what you're going to lock yourself into? Because at this point, if you said one thing to the cop at the scene, you're saying another thing to the, you know, um, to me at the deposition. I, I want to make sure I know what you're going to say at the trial in front of a jury. So I want to lock you in now. So Scott and I are going to do a quick- Just one uh, thing, Pyle, because it yeah. just kind of follows up on that. Um, yeah. And it um, is related to what I, I was saying before about, um, you know, recapitulating or summarizing what 
somebody might have said, and you, you just want to kind of clean it up. Um, an effective technique is, is to just say, you know, let me see if I if I understand, you know, this correctly, or you know, let me see if if I, I understand what you're saying, or you can, you know, you know, kind of play Mickey the dance, you know. I, I just want to make sure I I understanding what you're saying, and then you kind of rephrase what they said to you, and then they affirm it, and it's probably going to be a, a better soundbite to use at trial. Okay, so Scott and I are going to do a couple of really quick demo short ones. Uh, the first one will be how to lock in the witness. And so okay. Scott's going to be the attorney and I'm going to be the witness. All right. Have you ever traveled to Italy? Yes. How many times? Um, several times. And did, did you take some of your jewelry to Italy and leave it? Um, yes. When did you do that? Um, I don't recall. Approximately. Um, November, maybe? November of 2009? Yes. What jewelry did you take to Italy in November 2009? Oh, just what I was wearing. So there were two diamond rings. And are those the two diamond rings that have been the subject of a motion in this litigation? Yes. And you left them in Italy? Um, I don't recall. You don't recall whether you left your diamond rings in Italy? No. All right, so that was the first one that's, um, you, you see from that initially I said, you know, I took some jewelry to Italy, I left it there. And in the end, by the time he starts narrowing down what my answer really is, it turns out that I don't remember if I left those rings at Italy. Now, if at trial, if I said, oh yeah, I recall, I remember it, I left it on the, you know, on the counter in my hotel room, Scott can uh, take this transcript and impeach me with it saying, Six months ago, when you were closer to coming back from Italy, you didn't remember whether you left them, and now you suddenly remember you left them. So that's, uh, you know, a good sign bite for um, being able to impeach them. And now we're going to do how to pin down memory, and I'll be the attorney on that one. And we're talking about, um, you know, what Scott remembers about an email. So the conversation that you had with Mr. Duffy, um, that was that on June 19th? Was it a conversation? I believe it was an email. Okay, so can you tell me what the email said? Uh, the email expressed an interest in getting more information from the Department of Defense. Um, what kind of more information? Uh, a description of the program. And to the best of your recollection, what did Ms. Duffy um, say to you in response? That the president had questions about the press report and that he was seeking additional information. Do you remember anything else about that email? No, not that I recall. Okay. So now again, here is me locking Scott in as to what he remembers about the email. I probably will show him the email later after I've asked him, you know, exhausted his memory about that and ask him questions about the email. But now, um, if I even if I didn't show him the email during the deposition, if he suddenly remembers at trial uh, more details about the email, um, then you know I have a basis to question him, and then maybe he can tell me at trial that he happened to look at the email after the deposition, and that's why he remembers. But again, this is a way to lock uh, the witness into the testimony. A little bit of a lag. There we go. All right, Pyle's already touched on this, so I'm not going to spend um, much time at all on this. Um, but you know, you want to have a clean copy of um, exhibits to to present to the witness. I mean, the way I prepare for depositions is I'll have a, a pile of documents, um, and I'll have you know notes and questions all over them. Um, so that I don't have to put <clears throat> those questions in an outline. My outline might just say, you know, exhibit, you know, A, which is kind of my internal um, marking. And I pull out my exhibit A and I'll have a bunch of um, um, questions on it. But 
you've got to give the witness a, a clean copy and, and you're going to give all counsel a courtesy um, copy. Um, you know, when you hand the witness the uh, exhibit, you're going to want them to authenticate it. So, you know, you ask them, you know, you know, what is it? Do you recognize it? You know, did you write this or did you receive this? Um, you you want to, you know, you want the witness to identify it, um, show that the witness, you know, knows something about it um, and that it's authentic. And then what happens when you've got a difficult witness sort of sitting across from you, right? So first of all, keep your calm, ask very simple questions with one fact per question. So, and if, avoid loaded words like, were you negligent? You know, obviously if somebody asked me if I was negligent, I'm gonna get all bristled and say no. So- And you're gonna sure get you an objection from the attorney. <laughs> right, that's a legal question. Um, for sure. So just stay calm, ask simple questions, one fact per question, and jump around. So if you think that they're anticipating what you're going to ask because you're going chronolo chronologically, well, jump around in the topics and, you know, throw them off a little bit. Um, and if it really gets bad where uh, it's a point where the witness is just completely being non-cooperative with you or being, um, you know, being very difficult, uh, maybe you continue the depot and take, you know, when you continue the depot, you suspend it and then you take it again in a second day, do a videotape depot. Or if you can't do that, then you call for a recess and you make sure you talk to opposing counsel and tell them, you know, um, this is going to be, if your client is being difficult, then I'm going to suspend and talk to the judge. Or if there's no opposing counsel on the other side, you remind the witness that they're under oath. Um, and that usually tell, you know, usually we'll have the witness kind of get back on the straight and narrow. Something difficult witnesses, uh, frustrating witnesses do is they'll say, oh, you know, that's all I can remember at this time. Um, you know, I don't recall. And, and, you know, the concern is that they, at trial, they might, you know, suddenly, you know, quote unquote, remember something. So, I mean, there's not that much you can do in those situations, but, you want to um, try to limit the witness's ability to, you know, later claim that his memory was refreshed. So um, you might say, you know, did you, you know, take any notes about the, you know, accident? Did you, you know, did you talk to anybody else about this? Um, you know, is there anything else that might help you remember about this? And if they say, you know, no, then, you know, if they do try to, um, you know, come up with a refreshed recollection at trial, you can, um, you can impeach them with that kind of testimony. So difficult opposing counsel. Um, again, you know, just keep your calm. Um, don't take the bait. Um, you know, if, if counsel is, you know, objecting a lot, you might, or making speaking objections, you know, ask for the basis of the objection. Um, a lot of times they're, they might be objecting just to, to rattle you. Um, so, you know, just kind of put them on the defensive. Um, you know, sometimes objections are legitimate and you've asked a bad question, you know, in that case, just, you know, rephrase the question. Um, um, you know, I think videotape with Zoom now and, and videotape depositions, um, that has a calming effect, you know, on, on opposing counsel and witnesses. I, I think people, you know, notwithstanding the video clip that Pyle showed earlier, um, you know, I think people are pretty, pretty well behaved on video. Um, you know, try to, try to put things on the record. Um, so if you need to take a transcript to court, you can. Yeah, especially when it's something, you know, if the opposing counsel is passing their clients notes, that's not something that the court reporter is going to pick up on, at least uh, the transcript is not going to pick up on it. So you want to say that on the record, you know, let the, you know, I'd like the record to transcript to reflect that counsel has passed a note to um, the witness. Uh, so if there's things like that, that are, um, you know, really out of line, you want to put that on the record. Right. And sometimes you might want to just go off the record and have a discussion with opposing counsel um, to diffuse things. And, and then, you know, you might go back on the record and to the extent necessary, you might, you know, summarize what you just talked about. 
um, definitely watch your tone because just like you're watching, you know, the client, uh, the deponents, the witnesses, body body language. You could see in the video, um, you know, what how how much of an impact the body language can have and the the tone of the response is same for you as a uh, as a lawyer who's taking the deposition or defending the deposition. Make sure that your tone is calm. Be respectful of the witness, even if it's a hostile witness, even if it's a witness that's very difficult. Um, you know, be respectful. And then again, like I just said, if you know, to the extent that there's uh, stuff going on in, in during a deposition that you think is important to put on the record, especially passing notes or uh, you know, if there's rolling eyes every time you ask a question about your client, put that on the record. Uh, and you know, especially if it's like rolling eyes, all right, what makes you roll your eyes? I see that you're rolling eyes. And then you may get some gems out of that because there may be something else that the witness wants to say um, that your question is not directed to. So you might get something good out of that. So make sure. Okay, so uh, we're just, we've got a couple of minutes left. We're just gonna quickly talk about um, defending a deposition. Um, you know, just like preparing to take a deposition takes time, you know, defending a deposition takes time too. Um, you wanna meet with your client, you know, at least once or twice. Um, a lot of people are um, unfamiliar with what depositions are, um, let alone, you know, the ground rules. And so you wanna try to put them at ease, you know, tell them that, you know, it's going to be, you know, we're just gonna meet in a conference room, you're gonna be under oath, um, but, you know, I'm going to be there with you and, um, you know, you just have to provide your truthful testimony. So you're going to explain to them, um, you, you need to kind of give them a big picture view of the case, where they fit in the case, and then you're going to go um, through documents that you expect them um, to be shown. And, um, you know, usually, you know, I'll do a, a dry run with, I mean, not whole dry run of the deposition, but, you know, we'll do some, you know, mock um, question and answers so they get a feel of the kinds of questions that they might have to answer. I mean, some people um, even videotape um, witnesses in, in prep sessions. Um, if it's a really important deposition, you might do that. Oh, just, and sorry, the, the unique circumstances of the 30B6 witness, uh, 30B6 witness. Uh, as I mentioned before, um, the, um, the organization has to designate a witness on specific topics. And so as a defendant um, or as a party um, having a, a corporate designation, you've got an affirmative obligation to uh, educate that witness. That witness. That witness might not really know anything about a certain topic, but you as an organization and as their um, attorney have to affirmatively educate um, that client. So, um, you know, 30B6 depositions take a fair, fair amount of time to uh, educate the witness. And then if you are the attorney who's defending the depositions, you're going to be doing three main things, right? So you are um, objecting, uh, you are uh, making sure that you're, um, to the extent that there's an objection to form, you just say objection to form, to the extent you instruct your witness not to answer, especially it's because of privilege reasons, you instruct them not to answer. And then to the extent that there's anything that you need to redirect the witness on, you're, um, you know, ask clarifying questions, maybe the other attorney didn't ask the question that is something that's really important to your defense, make sure you ask, redirect, 90% of the time, I don't do redirects because there's no reason for it. Uh, but it's something you should think about uh, before the deposition is closed. Now, I think we had a couple of questions. So yeah. it's in the last minute or so we have left. Sure. Yeah. So I'm just going to go from the back. Uh, can you designate more than one 30B6 witness if one person doesn't have all the knowledge of all the topics? Yes. Um, you know, technically under the rules, you could designate Tom Cruise um, to be the witness. The person doesn't have to have um, any of their own knowledge. They just need to be educated so that they, they can come into a deposition and um, testify as a representative of the, the company or, or the organization about that specific topic. Um, 
how do you prepare a non-party witness considering there's no privilege and they'll be asked what they did to prepare? Well, you can't prepare, you know, you can prepare an employee of a company, but as far as a, a true third party, um, you can't. And you're right that, um, you know, if you did talk to that third party witness, um, that's, that's fair game for the deposing attorney to ask about. And they might ask, you know, have you spoken to, you know, you know, um, counsel for Acme Corp? Have you spoken to anybody, you know, at Acme Corp about this litigation? You know, what, what did they tell you? You know, blah, blah, blah. So um, that, that is a, that is a limitation for third party witnesses. Um, I'm going to ask you this pile, any tips specifically for remote depositions? Do you have a preferred platform? Uh, so I prefer Zoom just because a lot of people have been using Zoom, but I also have used Microsoft Teams, um, which I think the, some, some of the federal agencies use. Uh, you know, just whatever the, the court reporter that you're using uses is typically what you're going to end up using. Um, tips for handling. If you think this uh, deposition is going to take two hours, it's going to take four. Everything is really slow, not just because of lagging, but also a lot of technical problems. So it just happens. So make sure that you reserve double the time um, and practice. Practice with somebody in your office, practice with a friend, obviously not with privileged information. Um, definitely do that. Okay, so this question, I understand if there is an objection, it can be noted and the witness can continue on with the answer. If you instruct the witness not to answer due to privilege, does that mean the witness will not answer? Yes, I mean, the, um, the attorney defending the deposition will, you know, instruct the witness not to answer and that witness will not answer. Then there then might be some back and forth between the deposing attorney and um, the defending attorney as to whether privilege really does apply, uh, which may be on or off the record. But um, if the witness is instructed not to answer, you know, presumably they're not going to answer. How does your handling of the deposition compare with an opposing attorney who is not cooperative or is, or is being difficult? Pyle? Um, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. Handling of the deposition compare. Um, if, you know, if, if the attorney is not being cooperative or difficult, again, note it on the record. Um, and listen, maybe, maybe they are right. Maybe you are asking questions that are constantly leading. You know, one of the things that I, as a junior attorney, I did was the fives, the house, every question should start with it. It's very mechanical, but it, it's good practice to do. Every question starts with where, when, how, why. Then you know it's not a leading question. 90% of the time you can do that. Sometimes you cannot because it's, you know, it's a question like, did you, did you not? Um, but listen to the other side's attorney and see whether what they're saying actually makes sense and try to fix it. If not, if they're just being difficult, put it on the record, suspend and go to court. I mean, I've rarely done that, but if you just put something on the record, um, they tend to kind of you know ship up after that. Yeah, I've never done that. Yeah. Actually in 26 years. Um... I think I think generally the the members of of the Massachusetts bar are pretty decent. So um, you know you hear about horror stories, but um, hopefully you won't have any of those. Um, what can be some objections as to the form of a question other than confusing or misleading? I think I, that that question probably came in before I talked about it, but um, you know a question could misstate prior testimony. You know. Witness might have said that, um, you know, they were going 30 miles per hour, you know, down the street. But then the question, you know, um, you might, uh, the question might incorporate, you know, when you were going down the street at 40 miles per hour, did you feel like you were going too fast for that neighborhood? You know, that's a horrible question. But, I, you know, uh, you'd object because it misstated the evidence. The witness had previously said 30 miles per hour, not 40 miles per hour. So, there's that, you know, the question can be argumentative, it can be misleading, um, vague and ambiguous calls for a legal conclusion. Um, yeah. Any anything that, you know, a question could be cured right on the spot. Okay, one last one. 
Oh. Any tips? For, yeah. Any tips for the I don't remember witness? Well, um, first, if somebody says I don't remember, um, it could be helpful to you because if they don't remember now, they how can they remember at trial? But before you sit with the I don't remember and you accept that, try to uh, you know jog their um, memory. How Scott did in um, it, it, when we were doing the demo, you know, I said I don't remember when I left when I went to Italy and left the ring. He said. Uh, approximately and I said okay November and then he said November 2009 so try to bookend right if somebody says I don't remember what the valuation of the company was well was it between one and ten million yeah well was it between two and four million yeah I would think so so at least now you've narrowed their memory down to a range as opposed to just not remembering at all so try to refresh their recollection maybe there's a document that you can help show them but if in the end the witness doesn't remember nothing you're doing helps them remember so be it that's the answer you have to live with well and then also you want to see if there's anything um that would help refresh the recollection um i mean they might say oh yeah there's you know i took notes you know um oh you did you know where are those notes oh they're they're in my desk at home and so you know then you know you might suspend the deposition you know at the end um, subject to calling them back, you might, you know, issue a new document request. So try to try to figure out, um, you know, if, if there's anything else that could help them refresh their recollection. And if there is nothing else, then you use that at trial. If they try to refresh the recollection um, later. Great. And I think we're over time a little bit. So thank right. you guys for sticking with us. Hopefully this was helpful. I know it's been recorded. So if you want to see it again, once the BBA puts it back up. Um, and I think the BBA probably will send around the slides um, later. Thank you. All right, thanks, bye Pyle.